Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. Prayer is one of the pillars of Lenten spirituality, but it's hard, right? We're constantly tempted to ask, am I doing this right? Am I doing this enough? Is it even working? Prayer is so foundational to our lives as Christians, and yet at the same time feels somewhat mysterious. We might even convince ourselves it's just not worth the effort. Fortunately, today's guest has some experience in prayer, and he's familiar with these very struggles, these temptations to throw in the towel and assume prayer is better left to someone else. That's why he wrote a new book, Learning to Pray, a guide for everyone. Today, Father James Martin S.J. returns to AMDG to kick off the Lenten season to give us a little insight into prayer and to offer us a word of encouragement in our own spiritual lives. Welcome, Father James Martin. We're excited to have you back on the podcast. My pleasure. Good to be back. Good to have you. And I, I know I saw you on Colbert a couple nights ago. I assume that was uh, preparation for this conversation, right? Yes, this that was the uh, that was the kind of JV team for the right. for the varsity, right? Exactly. Well, we get similar similar reach, so it'll be very similar in uh, in conversation. I want to get into it. You have a new book, um, Learning to Pray, uh, and and you've written so much. And I wonder how. Um, how you came about saying to yourself, I need to write this book right now. Um, you, you've, you've talked about prayer, of course. You have so much good content out there. What made you say, let's get into it uh, in, this, in this book? Well, I had written, as you said, a number of other books. Uh, the book that I think I talked most about prayer in uh, was The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. And, you know, because of space, I had to keep it fairly limited. And I'd long wanted to write a book about prayer. Um, it's something, obviously, I'm interested in as a Jesuit and as a spiritual director. And one of the main reasons I wanted to write it is because there's so many wonderful books about prayer out there, but many of them, even the, the really good ones, tend to overlook what happens when you pray. Like, what really is going on when you close your eyes? And that was one of the most important questions I had when I was a Jesuit novice. People would talk about, oh, you know, I... When I pray, I feel God's presence, or God said this to me, or God communicated this to me, or I really, I felt God encouraging me, and I just thought, what are you talking about? Like, what does that really mean? And I think that's really overlooked in a lot of books. I'm sure you read books where they've talked about the fruits of prayer, or when you feel God's presence. What does that mean? And and most people, when they are coming to the life of prayer, want to know that. So the book is an intro. It talks about what happens, and it also talks about uh, lots of different methods of prayer and challenges in the spiritual life. It's it's basically, it tries to be a kind of um, portable spiritual director for the person. Yeah, and you have so many chapters on different ways to, to pray and different ways to enter into it. You know, for, for me, writing is such a, a reflective process. I feel like I, I learn a lot about myself or discover new things about, you know, the topic. Uh, what What came up for you as you were working through this book on prayer? What new things did you learn about yourself or your own approach? That's a great question. I, I think that I had to really remind myself to make this book as accessible as possible to people. So stuff that I would consider, um, you know, something that I've known for a long time or that is somewhat obvious in spiritual direction should be put into the book because not everybody has a spiritual director. And that doesn't mean that I'm sort of talking down to the reader. I'm just saying that, you know, at the beginning of the spiritual life, there are a lot of basic questions, you know, like, how do I know that this is God? Right. That's a, that's a really basic question. Or, uh, you know, what happens when my prayers don't seem to be answered? And I so I wanted to put stuff in there that, again, I think is overlooked in some books that might seem a little more kind of lofty. Right. And aspirational, shall we say. 
because these are the questions I hear all the time. You know, for example, you know, I prayed for my whatever spouse or mother or father or whatever to get better from COVID and they didn't. And and why did that happen? Does God not love me? That's a really important question. And it's usually sort of kind of passed over like, well, you know, we have to understand these things. I, I wanted to really sort of answer it the way that a, a person would answer it if they were asked that directly. I think it's really... I think it's really important to take those things seriously. So that that's one thing that I learned that I really needed to get down to sort of the elementals before I could, uh, you know, move on to the other stuff. Did anything surprise you either in writing it or, or since it's been out in the world? Yeah. Funny enough, um, that particular um, uh, piece of it, uh, how do I know that it's God? Uh, especially when sort of words and phrases come up in your mind, uh, you know, how do I know that this is God has really... Uh, been something that people have said they found helpful. And it's sort of five or six easy tips, right, of how do you know that something that's popping into your mind is is from God. And I've I've been surprised because it's, it's pretty um, basic. But again, it's something that a lot of people don't know. So for example, if you're praying and, you know, the image of a cheeseburger comes into your head, right, I mean, that might not really mean anything other than you're hungry. If, however, the memory of something that consoles you, right, from a past time comes into your head when you're stressed, that may mean something. And so the question is, how do we know? How do we discern? And so I try to lay out in the book some helpful hints for how to discern. It's an art. It's not a science. But the but the, some things that I found really helpful in my own life and in, and in directing other people. It, it, what you're describing, too, sounds so um, foundational to Ignatian spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. To how St. Ignatius describes prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found people are kind of asking you for, well, where do I go next? What are the next... Um, you know, like, is, is this a, have, has it served as, as, a, as a gateway for people to enter more deeply into this life of prayer? I would say, that's a great question. I would say because it's only been out for a week, people are still kind of digesting it. Um, but, but to your point, I think a lot of people ask, where do I go next? And they basically want and they need, you know, a retreat, right? And, and so it's wonderful to be able to point them to so many Jesuit and other retreat houses, because that's usually what happens. It's okay. I've been doing spirit. I've been praying. I've been doing spiritual direction for a while. Well, well, the I think the progression is first people need to pray, right? And that's and that's hard enough. That's a hard enough barrier to get over. Then they start to think about, oh, maybe I need spiritual direction. Uh, and in fact, I just released a video on that from America on spiritual direction. They don't know what that is. And then when they've been in direction for a while, it's like maybe I need to go on a retreat. So that's kind of the progression. Uh, and there's a, the nice thing about the. The Society of Jesus and the larger Jesuit world is we have all those things to be able to offer to people, you know, all around the, the country and the world, which is nice. Um, but a lot of people, it's, it's a mystery for people praying, spiritual direction and retreats. That's they need to be kind of, um, you know, kind of invited into that world. I think one of the things, too, that always excites me in this in this topic, this realm, is that, you know, you describe kind of those three steps, prayer, spiritual direction, retreat. But but I think people that, that get into it know that it, it's it's ever deepening there's no it's not like you go on retreat and you're like all right well i know that's it. it you know it, it, it's it's you know god is constantly inviting us more deeply um go ahead yeah. exactly no i was going to say exactly and that's why the book's called learning to pray i was originally going to call it how to pray which seemed a little final and a little arrogant too like this is this is how you pray whereas learning we're all learning we're never there's never a time where you can say i mean to your point uh okay that's it <laughs> right i i've i've learned everything i need to learn about prayer it's it's no it's it's a constant journey you know and thank god otherwise it would get pretty dull and one of the things I, I noticed as I was like looking through the book was there's so many voices you bring in so many other voices and mm. and, and and thinkers and writers and um 
it was there, is there anyone that like you really jumps out at you like this is the person or or that, that's that's thinking on prayer has really um you know jump started my own prayer life yeah definitely and I, I bet you know the answer to that question too it's uh bill barry yeah. who uh, the book is dedicated to and uh he died about uh, just a couple weeks ago maybe a couple months ago and he was uh among many things he was the provincial of the new england province uh formation director tertian director all these different things but i think he's best known to the wider world as a as an author on prayer uh and the spiritual life and his book god and you which i was given as a novice really changed the way i've prayed um the insight is basically that your relationship with god can be compared to a relationship with a friend and that's a great lens through which to understand your relationship with God. So for example, you know, a good relationship requires time, honesty, ability to change, you know, some silence, you know, and, and it's a, it's just a great insight. And so I, he, he's in the book. There are a lot of Jesuits and a lot of um, lay people and uh, women and men who have influenced me. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's good to bring in those voices, right. Um, to kind of help introduce other reader to, to, you know, other voices they, that they may not know. But Bill Barry is really kind of the pole star of the book. And, uh, yeah, he, he, before he died, he was able to review it and help me with it and, you know, made some good comments too. So he's, he was a really great director. That's awesome. Yeah. Just bringing in different, I mean, I thought obviously Father Barry is, is a you know, legendary, but mm-hmm. even just bringing all these, these voices again, gets to the point that, you know, there's no, there's no limit to prayer. Just, you just gets deeper and deeper and all the people, different experiences. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and they come at it from different ways. Uh, can I tell you a funny story? Um, we had a, 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 an O'Hare fellow at America media called Teresa Donnellan. And uh, I had a huge stack of books that I'd loved, you know, in my own prayer life, you know, maybe like 50 books, you know, that I'd read, you know, over the last 30 years. And I said to her, would you please go through these books that I've read and find passages that relate to what I'm talking about? So she spent like six months going, yeah, exactly, going through and pulling out like perfect quotes that would fit what I was um, talking about in the book. So. I just want to give a shout out to her. It was so helpful. I mean, it saved me about six months of time. I would have had to sort of slog through this. So that that it makes me happy that, you know, she was able to sort of find all these great um, passages that, you know, that I, I might have read like 25 years ago. Right. So, yeah, so it is, it is it's a book uh, filled with lots of voices on prayer. That's a good little behind the scenes. I actually was wondering how you managed to pull out all those <laughs> quotes. Um, so, so we're at the, the precipice of Lent, right? And I think mm. a lot of folks are, are using your book, at least if, if my online research here has, has proved out anything, um, are going to be using your book uh, to kind of accompany their own journeys, either individually or as communities throughout uh, the Lenten season. And it occurs to me that Ash Wednesday, um, you know, last Ash, we- Ash Wednesday, we were able to go to church and actually have the ashes on our mm. foreheads. Um, this year is different. So in the spirit of of, of prayer, entering into prayer into new ways. How how are you going to mark Ash Wednesday? How do you encourage other people to to still enter into the season prayerfully, even if it's different than, than what we are accustomed to? A great question. The first thing I would say is to enter into Ash Wednesday safely, right? There's no need to um, risk your health uh, going to get ashes. So if you can do it safely, great. If you can, it's okay. Um, I think that this year we've really given up so much already. I mean, people have given up you know, sometimes their health, their financial stability, sometimes their livelihood, friends, family. So I've been saying this Ash Wednesday might be good to do something that's a little more positive than penitential. So, for example, maybe spending more time in gratitude and prayer, right, and and developing a 
a practice where, you know, for example, in the examination of conscience, where you're actually just spending time being grateful, like call to mind three things you're grateful for every day, or call three people that, you know, you love and that need to hear from you. I, I to be honest, I really think that we've given up enough. I, I think to say to someone, all right, now, in addition to having no family and friends you can talk to, you can't have any chocolate. I mean, that, that's, that's, I think that's almost cruel. That's the last thing I'm holding on to is that chocolate. No, the, just the chocolate. <laughs> so you, you talked about, you know, prayer as, as relationship with God, obviously, and that's, that was, you know, pivotal to Father Barry's work. Um, and, and so often I think we lose sight as we enter into Lent, you know, again, like you're saying, you're like, oh, give up chocolate. Is that going to bring us closer to God? Will that help us in that relationship with God? Um, you know, so, so how can we, you gave some great examples of things to, to think about as we're entering into Lent. How, how might we kind of keep our focus on this, this, you know, relationship with God, with neighbor, you know, with the world, this, this Lent, as opposed to, you know, dietary restrictions? Good point. And that's a great question because it's sometimes harder because we're not in uh, connection with people and relationship with people as much during the pandemic. I think that the idea of trying to reach out to people who are particularly lonely or um, needful or struggling is really important. And we all know people like that. We all know people who are elderly or sick or afraid, right, or panicking. And I think one of the nicest things you can do for Lent, which I hope I think God would really like, uh, is to reach out to these people who are feeling marginalized right now. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's one way to help connect, right? Because, you know, you can't go to church and you can't, you can't, uh, you know, be out in crowds. And But I think there are ways that we can do it creatively. That makes a lot of sense. Um, another realm people often turn to when they're thinking about Lent is, is social media. I'm going to give up, you know, Twitter or Facebook mm-hmm. or uh, whatever it is. Um, I wonder, do you have any, you know, you're very active on social media, as uh, probably many of our listeners know. Do you have any kind of spiritual tips for, for going into social media um, and existing in that space to, to try and maybe remove some of the toxicity? Oh, yeah. And I know you teach social media. And so uh, I'm, it's like I'm pe- preaching to the choir. Um, but I'd like to hear your tips as well afterwards. Uh, you know, the the very first thing is always give people the benefit of the doubt, right? That, you know, you don't have to attack people. I don't think you should ever attack people. Uh, no ad hominem arguments, um, which I think is really important. Never, you know, it's diff- the difference between saying, you know, I disagree with what Eric says, or I disagree with your argument here, and here's why I disagree with it. And Eric is a bad Catholic, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> which is Which is crazy. I also think that, um, you know, you have to remember that, uh, you know, especially if you're Catholic and a public Catholic or that's on your Twitter feed or on your Instagram feed or on your Facebook page, you're in a sense speaking for the church, right? I mean, you're not the, you know, Holy See press office, but you are communicating something about the church and to remember that. So I think always being charitable and kind. And the other sort of tip is I generally do not engage in arguments online, Right. And if, if something happens where someone is attacking me, I'll I'll usually it's I'll ignore it if it's kind of ad hominem. But oftentimes I'll take it offline, you know, do a DM and say, hey, let's talk about this. And it's it's much easier and it, and it makes it less contentious. And the other thing is, look, I, I find sometimes engaging in those arguments is pretty desolating. I mean, it's just it's just it just becomes, in my experience, you know, a back and forth and the other person and even me, you know, have a hard time being convinced. So why do it? So I, I'm really leery of engaging in arguments uh, online. It's just, it, it, I don't think it does much good. Does that make sense to you? I mean, those good, what, what, what kind of tips do you tell your students? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, one kind of spiritual rule that I kind of live by on, on Twitter, at least, which is probably where I am 
very few places I'm active at this point is, um, am I, is this, is it, am I tweeting this to, to get a response to just get some, mm. you know, a series of tweets? Is it, yeah. cause I think that to me points to pride, you know, and that, that, that's the, mm. I, I just want to laugh or I just want to say something witty to get, you mm. know, a, a rise out of, out of, you know, faceless people. I don't even know. Um, and I think sometimes, it, you know, uh, a, a good comment is a good comment. And I think, um, but for me, as I, before I hit tweet, I kind of reflect a little bit that way and say, is this, you know, where is this, is this kind of bringing me along the upward path of, uh, of, of the enemy or is this kind of the downward path of Christ? And, uh, yeah. And, and I think there's a temptation on Twitter to be funny or to be clever. And, and it's, it's difficult to turn away from that. You know, the three, I, I think this is roomy. I think the three gates that something has to pass through before you say it, I don't, I, I may not be able to remember. I think is is it true is the first one? Uh, is it helpful, I think, is the other one. And I think is it charitable. I think those are the three things you have to think. And I really try hard. The other thing is sometimes people are just going to disapprove and you have to be free of that, right? Um, I posted something yesterday about uh, the gospel reading, which happened to be Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, where the, the woman comes up and says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus rebuffs her. And then she says, even the dogs get the food, the food from the table, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, which is, completely legitimate that Jesus didn't want to uh, initially help the Syrophoenician woman, probably because she wasn't Jewish. I mean, that's what most commentators say. He thought his his ministry was, you know, primarily, at least at the beginning, um, to the Jewish community. So I, I wrote it that as a, as a kind of gospel tweet. Every morning I do a little gospel tweet. And someone wrote, so you're saying Jesus was racist? <laughs> I just thought, look, you, you, it, you can barely say anything on Twitter, but, you know, uh, you know, uh, people are going to take issue with it. And so I just answered him briefly, and that was that, right? I said, no, Jesus is not racist. He's he's sort of, you know, privileging the Jewish community. This is what most people think. Go take a look at a Sacrapagina commentary, the end. But that's the, I mean, I also didn't get into some big debate with this guy. Right. It, yeah. It, it's hard. I think that idea of people are going to disprove, you know, it's. I think it's, it's a spiritual truth just to live by in life, but it's so, it's so, um, tangible in social media because even you know you get negative comments or, or maybe you get no comments you know and, and and you say well geez like i thought this was funny or interesting or helpful and um and just kind of again re- i think recognizing in there that temptation to be like what about me like i this was a good thing i did why don't you affirm me is is, yeah. is a slippery path i don't yeah, know yeah no it is there's a little of that and i got a lot of pushback for you know for example like the lgbt ministry that i i participate in and, you know, you, you can say the simplest thing and people will go crazy. And part of it is being free of the need to be loved or liked or approved of and just say, look, they didn't, you know, not everybody liked Jesus, right? And he's our model and he got, he got some pushback and he was, he was free of that need. So it's difficult. And I think it's also, I think people are more used to this today. I think that the, the initial thing about who retweets me, how many times, how many likes do I get on Facebook? I think people are over that, which is kind of good. But now it's dealing with the, with the anger and the invective and really the the really really hateful stuff. I mean, the 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 comment I just mentioned to you is a pretty mild one. The stuff the other stuff I get is just it's crazy. I could I could tweet about anything, and that's you know some terrible comment. But you have to be you have to be free of the need for people to like you. And a lot of these people, you know, they're they're anonymous, so it's kind of hard to take them seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, again, I, I think I just always go back to the, not to, not to zoom it into deep Ignatian spirituality, but the, the two standards and the, of course. uh, what poverty, humility, uh, rejection, right. Is what, is what we're called to, or, uh, 
know, well, yeah, and, 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 and Ignatius says we're supposed to want that, which is hard because it's, uh, it's something that, you know, that Jesus participated in, right? And Jesus experienced it. We're supposed to participate in that. And it's, I'll tell you something. One of my old spiritual directors, when I was getting some pushback uh, years ago on something, I'll never forget this. His name was Jeff Chernacki. I'm not sure if you knew him. He was the former New York provincial. And I said, well, I'm getting all this pushback. And he said, um, didn't you pray for that on your long retreat during the spiritual exercises? I said, what? And he said, didn't you pray for humiliations? I said, well, not this kind. <laughs> and he said, well, what kind of humiliation did you pray for? I said, oh, I wanted the humility where people would say, oh, look at him. He's so humble. <laughs> <laughs> he said, um, you know, if, if it's something you want, it's not, it's not a humiliation. It's not, now that doesn't mean you're, you're sort of masochistic, but the idea is you should be okay with the fact that part of the, the Christian life is going to involve some pushback and that that's part of it. But it was a pretty funny conversation. I was like, yeah, I wanted the, a humility I could be proud of. The, the fun kind of humility. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't exactly. Want this, this, uh, this, this is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's so true. Um, so, so back to prayer, uh, you know, I, something that really resonated with me in your book and just kind of resonates with me, uh, you know, as I reflect on, on prayer in, in general is, is uh, you, you really talk about this idea that so many people say, oh, I, I pray, but I don't pray well. I'm not mm. good at prayer. Yeah. And um, I just wonder if you could unpack that a little bit, but, but specifically with this idea of how, what does it say about our, our view of God if we think that we're not praying well, you know? I know. Yeah, no, I mean, we have to be careful against, you know, spiritual pride. Like, oh, I pray really well. You know, I'm the best prayer ever. Um, but the the incidents I talk about in the book, I do this a lot with groups that I talk about prayer with, as I'll say, or oh, how many people pray? And, you know, usually most people raise their hands because, I mean, I'm talking about prayer usually. And then I'll I'll always ask them to close their eyes because they're embarrassed. And I'll say, how many people think they pray well? And, like, very few people keep their hands up. Because I think what happens is they assume, I, I, I was just talking about this with someone last night, that everyone else is praying well and that everyone else just sits down and has some amazing mystical experience. And they're the only ones who struggle with dry prayer or feeling like nothing's happening. And that's just simply not the case. And when people compare themselves to other people or they compare themselves to people who talk about their prayer in these glowing terms, they feel like kind of less than. And they sometimes feel, look, that, that I mean, I experienced this a couple months ago with someone that God's mad at them. So like my prayer has been dry. So what did I do wrong? You know, well, God's punishing me for something. So I wanted to kind of really demystify in a good way, this idea that everybody else is somehow, you know, able to just close their eyes and snap their fingers and, you know, get whatever they want in prayer. And that's, you know, it's up to God and that's just part of the spiritual life. So yeah, that's one of the goals of the book is to remind people that everyone goes through the difficulties. I wonder, you know, one of the um, things I think about in this in this area is we have so many saints that are that seem like superheroes, you know, mm. in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I spent some time with the Salesians. And I don't, I don't I'm oh, sure wow. you know it's John Bosco. Oh yeah, um, but. Um, you know, John Bosco just felt like a superhero, like, you know, just like casting out this and these kind of visions and like a, a dog appeared to strike down the demons. And um, and I was like, this is this would be great, like, you know, like fantasy story. This sounds yeah. awesome. But I don't know how to relate to a saint yeah. like that. That doesn't that's not my experience. That, yeah. that's, that's not even you know not praying well. That's just like, oh, man, how do we how do you in your prayer or, or um, I know you have a book on this, too, but how, how do you 
get you know make sense of these superhero saints and these you know maybe more average saints and and just kind of again mix it all together in the great communion of saints that that we're supposed to pray with and for yeah well the first thing is to remember that all the saints had rich spiritual lives i mean mother Teresa, for the last 50 years of her life said she never felt god's presence i mean that's pretty dramatic and I would say most people say, oh, well, my, my, at least my spiritual life is, my, my prayer life seems a little better than that. Um, and that was a real trial for her, a real penance. So that's the first thing to remember that even the saints struggle, right? I mean, Thomas Merton said, for example, if you've never been distracted in prayer, you're not praying. So that means that Thomas Merton struggled with distractions. St. Ignatius struggled with distractions. You know, there's, I have, I have a quote from him. Uh, from his personal writings where he said, oh, I was distracted by someone who was whistling, right? You can imagine, I mean, imagine St. Ignatius at the Jesuit headquarters in Rome saying, I wish that guy would stop whistling. <laughs> you know, some Jesuit, obviously. The other thing to remember is that um, we really don't know what's going on in their lives, in their, in their interior lives when they're describing that. Okay, so, so when John Bosco was talking about, you know, a dog came, is that something he sort of imagined in his prayer? Or did it come to him as a vision? Or we really don't know. And then the other thing to remember is that a lot of these stories by their followers are embellished. Okay, so that doesn't mean they didn't happen. But, you know, some of them can be, you know, embellished a little bit. And, and finally, sometimes these are like the peak moments in their lives, right? I mean, does that mean that every day John Bosco prayed? He was gifted with these graces. I don't know. Maybe he was, right? I mean, that's, but probably he had days that were kind of dry for him as well. So it's, it's really putting it in perspective and, and, and sort of remembering that your own spiritual life, spiritual life is your spiritual life. And you don't need to compare it to John Bosco or Francis de Sales. I, I mean, I certainly do not compare myself to Ignatius, who had these mystical experiences, you know, one right after the other, you know, when he was, um, after his conversion, I, I'm not having those these days, you know, and. And that's okay. You know, it's okay. I mean, I've had some, but nothing like Ignatius. Because I'm not Ignatius. I'm not supposed to be having those. Right. It makes me think, um, I honestly don't even know if this is a quote or if this is just something, uh, you know, a spiritual director said at one point to me. But but this idea that... Um, you know, I, I, I lose, you know, in prayer, you lose sight of God or, or you know, you have to keep turning back. And, and, and really, that's what a grace to have the opportunity to keep turning back to God in prayer, to think of that kind of reorientation as a, as a, as a new encounter with God. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that you know, people say that, you know, even our sinfulness, you know, is something in a way, you know, to be grateful for because it, it brings us back to God. I, I, I always laugh when I hear things like, oh, aren't you glad that you've had all these problems because they'll bring you back to God? And I'll say, you know, kind of. <laughs> like, I'd rather maybe not have so many. Uh, but yeah, I think it's human nature. You know, like, I think if we were left on our own to, you know, let's say you had a life where everything was fine. And nothing ever went wrong. I think it would be human nature to kind of forget about God. Right. So I don't know if God is giving us struggles to make us you know, uh, go back to God. But I think that's part of the human uh, experience, that, that that our struggles and even sometimes our sinfulness, you know, reminds us of our reliance on God, right? We're, 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 we're kind of regular people. And look, even John Bosco and Francis de Sales were sinful, right? Because they weren't, neither of them were Jesus or Mary. So, right. so they were sinful. And we, and we have to remember that too. They struggled. 
Um, going back a little bit to, uh, we talked about Father Barry and his his thinking on, on prayer as relationship. I wonder, you know, do you do you see this idea uh, of prayer as relationship? God as someone that we relate to, and not just someone that we you know send up a, a Christmas list to, you know, once a year, um, as a way to to look at prayer as a more sustainable practice. You know, something that's that's more accessible and, and, and easier to not easier but doable. Absolutely. Yeah, because that insight by Bill Barry that prayer can be compared, it's not the same thing, you know, to a friendship, means that it makes it more relatable, more understandable. And for example, when you say, uh, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about this with God, you say, well, all right, well, what, what does it do? This is one of Bill's insights. What happens when you are uh, not comfortable talking about something with a friend, like some big barrier, right? Well, the relationship gets kind of cold right? And formal and distant and sometimes ends, right? And the same thing happens with God, not because God's ending the relationship, but because it's a block. And so the point is that looking at it as a friendship, which I talk about in the book, helps you to really, in a sense, diagnose some of the problems you have in your spiritual life, right? Um, You know, or or for example, you're talking about the Christmas list. I think that's a great, that's a great image. Uh, Like Santa, right? If all you're doing is asking for favors and help, which is fine, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all you're doing, then it's a problem. So for example, let's say you and I go out, you, you and I are friends and we go out every Friday night for dinner. That's our, that's our way of doing things. Okay. Imagine if all I did constantly was just ask you for things. Hey, would you mind doing this? Would you mind doing that? Would you mind doing this? It's a kind of strange relationship, okay? So you'd say that that's a little strange relationship. What about listening and talking and getting to know the other person? By the same token, I will say, if I never asked you for anything, ever, ever, no favor, no nothing, that would also be a very strange relationship. So looking at it as a friendship really does make it more relatable, I think. And I think that was Bill's, that was Bill's great insight in his work. Okay, you, you make me think a little bit about um, the love languages, right? How some people, you know, show love by giving, by mm. by giving gifts, by by affirming. And I, I have to imagine that you know God speaks in all those love languages, that desire to give gifts and and to be you know asked for gifts and 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 affirming us. Exactly. Um, and again, that's, all, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's just that's just part of relationship, right? Yeah, and there are different ways of showing love, right? And there are different ways of relating to individuals, to friends, right, um, that are okay. So, for example, um, you know, if you have a friend and you say, um, you know, let's go see a movie together, right, When we, whenever we're able to see movies, that's a fine way of relating, okay? Or let's, um, you know, let's go out for dinner or let's take in a ball game or let's go walk on the beach, right? Or let's go to the beach, right? Each of those is a different way of relating to the friend. Now, that doesn't mean any of them are better or worse, Right. Or that you have to say to your other friends, I mean, imagine, but this is what people do, you know, in prayer. Imagine you and a buddy decide to go on a hike. Okay. And you have a great time. Okay. Now use that as a kind of example of like a way to pray. Right. Now the the two wrong things you could do, there are many wrong things. It'd be to say, the only way I want to relate to this person is to go on a hike. Every single time we see just a bit crazy. You're like, okay, now with the hikes, you know, let's see a movie or go out to dinner. The other thing that is wrong, and this is often the spiritual life, is you're saying to other people, yeah, the only way that you can relate to friends is by going on a hike. And it's like, well, no, I, I actually went on the beach with a friend of mine. No, that doesn't count. You know? And that's what we do with prayer. Like if you're not praying the rosary, if you're not doing centering prayer, if you're not doing imaginative contemplation or Ignatian contemplation, that's wrong. 
So that that this is so that's why Bill's analogy is so helpful to just kind of help people understand uh, their prayer lives. Yeah, and something else I I remember I, I read from Father Barry was that idea that you know contemplation is just kind of you just bringing God into the moment. You know, mm. like you're on you're on a bike ride and you say, oh hey, God's here. You kind of like you know mm. you raise your eyes a little bit and you say, oh God's here. This is this is prayer. Mm-hmm. That was just a. a a, a paradigm shift for me again that you're saying you don't have to be on your knees with the rosary in hand and you know in the dead of night with a candle lit you can you can be doing anything and just yeah and God some people it. and some people like that better like so for me people say what's your favorite place to pray i was like in my room you know when it's quiet it's just that's me okay other people like to be moving right and i like to i pray in my bike best or you know people say things to me like i pray when i'm driving okay fine there's nothing wrong with that. And this, you, you can't say that's a bad way to pray. So, yeah, I think, yeah, whatever way gets you closest to God is the right way to pray for you. Can you say a little bit about the imagination as a place for prayer? Um, there's obviously imaginative prayer, but but the idea of, of, of expanding our imagination as a way of grappling with God. Yeah, well, so, I mean, as you know, one of the main ways that that Jesuits, um, you know, have uh, taught others to pray, um, this is popularized by St. Ignatius, is Ignatian contemplation, where you imagine yourself, for example, in a scripture scene, okay? So that's one way to do it. You, what do I see? What do I feel? What do I hear? You know, like, really, what, what does it look like? And, and, and see what comes up, you know, see what kind of emotions, insights, memories, desires, those kinds of things come up. But to your point, I think a lot of it is imagining God in different ways. Um, and one of the problems we get into uh, with prayer is that people think that, you know, God is like their parents or some judge or some taskmaster. Or as one uh, friend of mine said memorably, I love this image because it's so, it's so negative, God is like my parole officer. Oh, yikes. Yeah, I know. So the, the parole officer, that works on so many levels. I mean, first of all, you've already done something wrong. Okay, so you're in jail. The parole officer is like waiting for you to do something else wrong. And it's kind of a it's a kind of antagonistic relationship. Well, if you think of God like that, then, you know, if if your prayer is dry, well, you've done something wrong. I'm being punished versus, you know, if you think of God, you know, say in the way Jesus offers examples of God, like the, um, you know, like the the father and the prodigal son story, the prodigal father sometimes or the woman sweeping up a coin, you know, looking for us, right? Or the or the the, the good shepherd who goes off to find the lost sheep. That that can really change how you see God. And that, to your point, that's that's imagination. That's sort of opening up your imagination to new ways of seeing God. And I I think one of the most common reasons for people to struggle in the spiritual life is because of their images of God. They're very very kind of uh, stark and and sometimes dark too. Yeah, no, that makes sense, and I think that again gets to the importance of of, of relationship, of, of of learning new ways of of imagining God. Mm-hmm. I, last last question here. I, I um you know as, as we enter Lent, uh, I'm mindful that people are always excited. At least I am. At the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday, you you, you take off running with your prayer, your fasting, your almsgiving, <laughs> and then it's just so long, and you get to like almost Holy Week, and you kind of are just in a slump and then holy week starts you're like oh geez i gotta get it together before easter do you do you have any very well put actually that's pretty much everyone's spiritual life during Lent. (laughs) well i wonder if you have any tips to kind of get us through those doldrums of lent you know over the hill uh, you know when we're kind of running out of steam any anything you do or, or or you wish you did that uh kind of get us get us to the finish line yeah, you know, I would say do your best. That That's what I often tell people. And don't sort of beat yourself up for, you know, kind of, quote unquote, failing 
uh, at Lent. I have a friend of mine who almost every year on her Facebook page posts, oh, you know, Lent's almost over. And I I didn't, I wasn't able to sort of, you know, be faithful to my Lenten penances and pray more and do your best. Because I think what happens, you know, the old expression, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Right. I mean, you know, just because you don't do it perfectly does not mean that you haven't made some spiritual progress. And, you know, there's, you know, it's always a new day, right? You get up and let's say, you know, for the last three weeks of Lent, you've been pretty bad. That's okay. You know, do, do better this week. I think it's a, you know, we shouldn't see Lent as a preparation for, you know, meeting Christ in a new way. Right. And we can do that every day. And that's, it's okay if you're, you know, if you, if you fail on the chocolate, you're not, you're not going to sin. And and even if you eat it on you know Holy Saturday, that's okay. You got close enough, right? Easter, close enough. Easter you basket just, is almost there. You do your best, and I think sometimes people focus on way too much on the things that they've done wrong instead of you know sort of in a way being grateful for the things that they've been able to do you know with God's grace, uh, right? You know, and and have improved themselves. So maybe have a more positive Lent this year. I like that positive Lent. Do your best. I think those are good uh, good insights to end and our discussion on prayer on. <laughs> well, Father Jim, I appreciate your time and your work, and, uh, and thanks again for, for being with us today. My pleasure, and thanks for all your great work. It's a great podcast, and you're doing really terrific work. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>